and welcome to episode 18 of the Mostly Weather podcast. My name is Claire Whittam and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Doug McNeil. Hello there. And Jeff Norwood-Brown. Hello. And the subject of today's episode is weather and health. And so we've invited along a special guest today, Rachel McInnes. Hi, Rachel. Hi there, Claire. Could you tell us just a little bit about what you do here at the Met Office? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I look at um, climate impacts and I focus particularly on the climate impacts on health. Um, and I've got a particular interest in pollen and air quality and the impact that these have on people's health. Excellent. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time, I think, focusing on Rachel's specialist subject, but we should probably start off a bit more broadly and consider everything that there is to do with weather and health. So anyone here in the studio, have you had your health affected by the weather and the climate? Jeff, hand in the air, go ahead. <laughs> Every summer, this is going to really upset a lot of people, but this this time of year, I, I can't cope with at all. I can just about cope with heat these days, but direct sunlight, I'm rubbish in because I burn so easily. So r- roughly between April and October, I just tend to stay indoors a lot, you know. You've become a bit of a hermit. Yeah, a bit of a goth, you know. So, uh, But yeah, I, I'm, my skin is so fair that I, I just, I think I'm from Scandinavian uh, extract. So uh, yeah. I'm, Bigging I'm up ro- your Viking roots here. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, one of the things about that is I don't actually suffer from uh, seasonal affective disorder, which uh, is the um, is the mental health issue that affects people during winter when there's not much daylight around. I seem to be able to cope with uh, winter quite well. So Oh, that's interesting. Whereas today, the day we were recording this, it's a really horrible, grey, drizzly day outside in Exeter. In wonderful June. In wonderful June. And um, I, I really found that quite depressing. It was like, oh, it was so lovely and sunny. And, you know, just that dimension of how the weather just affects your mood is incredible. I, yeah. I went the other way. I was thinking, oh, it's a lovely, cool day after our recent spell of hot weather. and You, you can sleep properly now. And, you know, that's a bit easier, right? So I, 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 I had the opposite uh, emotion this morning coming in. I was like, oh, this is quite nice. <laughs> oh, really? So it affects all of us differently yeah, yeah, from different yeah, angles, doesn't it? I so, think this is, this is going to be one of the themes of, of weather and health, is that it turns out the relationships are really complex. Um, and I did a, a bit of work on weather and health a few years ago, and maybe I'll talk about that some other time. But um, it's not easy to find these relationships. And, and if you do find these relationships, you know, yay, you know. Um, but um, I did a lot of statistics in, on weather and health, and, and um, there's a lot of confounding factors, and there's, people are complicated. So um, when Whenever you have people, I reckon in, in um, it's difficult to do science with people, right? Because they're complicated beings, and there's all sorts of kind of crazy uh, feedbacks and nonlinear processes. Uh, it makes it interesting too, right? So, did you look at a specific aspect of the weather when you were doing this study? Then, Doug? yeah, it was um, it was on a COPD, so chronic obstructive pulmonary um, disease. Um, which is a sort of breathlessness uh, that people get as they get older if they've smoked for a long time. Um, and um, at the time we were looking at um, the Met Office forecast uh, of COPD, there was a, a service actually, um, and, um, and it was great. And um, uh, the, the, there were certain types of weather that we thought were, were Im- impacting um, uh, people who are suffering from episodes of, of breathlessness. Um, and and there, there were and there was a forecast service where they would call up. I, I, I've got to find out whether this is still going on. It might might well still be going on. Um, I'll check that. Um, but um, I tried to do some statistical modelling to improve the forecast, and and I did a. I think I sort of improved it, but it turns out that um, we were doing pretty well already. <laughs> so um, I was trying to think about confounding factors. So um, one of the things was that uh, people. The, the vaccination rates for flu were going up 
Um, so that would confound any signal that you'd have between, say, weather or climate change and, and this kind of health impact is that people are changing their behaviour. And that means that you get a, a change in the relationship between the weather and the health. So it sounds like we're talking about a cold weather winter phenomenon. That's right. That so at, so yeah. there was an I, I think at the time there was an idea that um, a brief spell of cold weather in the early winter could increase the number of people that were being admitted to hospital later on. So, so um, is, it, is it just the temperature itself or is it? Is well, it? That, this is the thing is there's so many different aspects of weather that might impact that it can be hard to pull out a signal. Mm-hmm. Um, and also at the time I was, I was looking at it, there was quite a short record um, which had some really large events. So flu, um, the, the amount of flu uh, in sort of in the system, so uh, going on in the UK at the time, had a really big impact. But was there then a weather relationship with the with the amount of flu. So every year there's a big spike in the number of people that get flu every winter, um, particularly over Christmas. You know, there's huge numbers. And some years it's much smaller spike than others. Um, so there's a really random element in there. So, uh, so I've heard that um, uh, the reason people get more colds in the winter is not because it's colder. It's because, well, <laughs> it's tangentially uh, um, uh, around that. It's because people tend to spend more time indoors with other people. With other and, people. And, and so diseases get spread that way or viruses get spread. So I think this was, at the time I was looking at, this was a few years ago now, this is one of the hypotheses. I have to go back and check. I haven't downloaded the numbers. The, the record is longer now um, and there's probably better relationships. Um, I was looking particularly with climate with climate change in mind, you know, with climate change impact on this. Um, and, and it turned out that for judging climate change, the record I was looking at wasn't really long enough. Um, but it, it, um, that was definitely one of the hypotheses. I'd have to go back and check, Jeff, whether that was the case or not, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, it, it is every, you know, every winter people get much more sick. I think it's really interesting. There's in the UK, of, there's a direct effect of weather and temperature in this case. And there are sort of these indirect effects. So, some of them I, are I'm not a medical well, professional, yeah. obviously, but like a direct effect on people with COPD is that when it gets colder, I think the airways constrict, and that's the direct physical response to temperature change. Yeah, everyone's nodding. Okay, yeah. Um, yep. um, whereas something like flu is more of an indirect effect. Yes, it affects humans, but it might be, as Jeff says, it's because we're changing our behaviour in response. That's to the right, or, it, or, or, or some other reasons. Or some other reasons. So um, people's immune systems may be put under more stress, or um, like you say, they may be um, meeting more, or they're travelling more to be back together at Christmas you know that sort of thing so so pulling out those effects when there's a really a short record essentially fairly short record is, is you know really hard although we, we have got a very large number of people um so if you can access the data from a very large number of people you can draw those relationships better so um so it's complex it's complicated that's the uh, uh, that's the message um but we'll yeah maybe we'll come back to the the copd one later in a in a, in a later podcast because i know we've got lots to talk about with Sounds rachel like, too. yeah big subject there i mean i guess some other direct effects that i was thinking about just simple things like when it gets icy and snowy in the winter people are much more likely to fall over slips and falls and things go up and particularly for elderly people that are much more at risk of breaking bones so there's there's a direct effect there which is quite interesting yeah my understanding um from from the time i was working on that is that black ice is the worst possible thing um so people they say they have um um lots and lots of plans in place for if there's black ice and people fall over because you get a huge increases in admissions to hospital so the, the so let's just clarify that then the ice is naturally black it's just very transparent and tends to form over asphalt which is black so you can see the asphalt but you can't see the ice you can't see the ice that's, yeah that's yeah, right and that catches people out yeah 
That's interesting. And, um, and the other one I was thinking about is things like hypothermia. So this is a bit more potentially related to what you're doing. If you're climbing up a mountain in the winter and you haven't got the right gear, you're much more likely to put yourself at risk of getting something like hypothermia. But I think, you know, there's economic factors that come into play as well. If people feel that they they aren't able to pay their fuel bills and, and what have you, that they tend to not heat the whole house or the house at all. So the recommendations are, well, just heat at least one room that you can stay warm in, you know, plenty of layers, lots of hot food if you can. Mm. You know, so there's all sorts of factors that come into play on that as well. Um, Interestingly, I think we think of the UK, we think maybe that we have the colder winters rather than particularly thinking of us struggling with the heat so much. But um, in terms of how it affects people's health and the number of people, um, actually the the hot weather in the summer um, adversely affects people's health much more. So the number of, they call it kind of excess deaths, so the extra deaths that you would have compared to what you would expect to have uh, from the hot weather is much, much larger in the UK than what we would get from the cold weather, from what you're describing about the cold winters so I think that's quite interesting because probably in terms of what we experience we maybe notice the cold more and feel more discomfort from that but in terms of the effect on on people's health there's a, a big a big increase in yeah in and, and it's, it's it is as you say it's overnight as well that's the problem if it doesn't cool down yeah. overnight I mean hopefully normally in, in in hot weather you would expect clear sunny skies but if you then get cloud moving in overnight and it acts as a sort of blanket and traps the heat in and it doesn't cool down. This is where the vulnerable start to become uh, really impacted by the weather because the, the body overnight when you're asleep generally uh, recuperates. Um, but it doesn't... It's a big stressor on the body, isn't it? Yeah. To be too hot at night, it's not getting the chance to cool down and rest the way it normally would. And if you have that night after night, that, that's yeah quite a big stress especially if you're a vulnerable person if you've a, a baby or a, an older person or yeah or you've, you've got, got a, another health condition or yeah something. health conditions or you, even if you're homeless or something like that you know Absolutely. The, you know or the other factor that came up time and time again when i was doing my research was um if you're uh drinking excess alcohol or taking drugs that's another factor you know that the you know these sort of vulnerable people in society or again mental health issues play a factor as well if you don't have the awareness that you need to cool down yeah. you know or, or warm up depending and there are societal factors as well i know i remember um looking at the the great heat wave of 2003 across across europe um so uh, possibly up to 40,000 excess deaths i think was that, was that the figure i, I think in france really in suffered, france was it? the yeah. with the biggest suffering it's and um and I know that France, after that, put a lot of effort into um, changing people's behaviour, having uh, more water stations available in places like public places like railway stations. Um, I know that was particularly exacerbated because um, a lot of people were on holiday um, in August uh, when, the, when it happened and uh, weren't, weren't available to help perhaps their elderly relatives um, uh, to find ways to cool down so well, that's interesting yeah because august is peak holiday season in france in Germany, france and Italy. yeah, yeah and, okay. and people do you know and leave. So people are away from their families and so aren't able to support their elderly neighbors relatives friends my mm. understanding was that, that 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 so when there was um when there when we when there was another heat wave in 2006 in central europe um the the number of people the kind of rate of excess mortality or sort of excess deaths was was lower um, because they'd already started to change behaviour and put, put things in place. I think the other thing is with the UK as well, we're just not geared up for, for hot weather or haven't been in the past, so there isn't a, an awful lot of air conditioning in, in mm. you know, just the average uh, home. So, you know, we do seem to suffer, and, and if, if things are going to, you know, temperatures are going to continue to increase and we're going to have longer, hotter summers, um, 
then then that's going to become increasingly a problem. I also remember talking to a chap who was involved with the London Underground, and he said during the heat waves that they have there, the temperatures in in the trains are, are, are really phenomenal. So they've they've looked into putting air conditioning on all of the tube trains, but. The problem is, is where do those air conditioning units dump the heat to? They're just going to yeah. dump them into, into the, the street, mm, yeah, or the yeah. tunnels, or, or, or the yeah. tunnels, and just yeah. heat up the platforms. Yeah, you know? yeah. So they have a real problem there. There's a lot of engineering problems. I know the NHS has looked at it um, as well um, in, in terms of they're starting to understand how climate's going to change, um, and and that you're going to, you know, create an engineering problem as, as as much as a social problem. So yeah, I also know that one of the things he told me was. Uh, that if you if you faint or become ill in summer on a on a tube train, they will just stop at the nearest platform and drag you off and then treat you. Because if they oh, try and treat you on hot. the train, then you 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 you're backing up all the other trains that are trying to get through to that station and that just exacerbates the problem, you know. So so be you know, be aware you will be just dragged off unceremoniously <laughs> and then treated with great Care, I'm sure they're very good on the underground now though I mean I, I was there the, the other weekend and it wasn't in the heat of the the hot spell we've just had but I mean it was still ridiculously hot even late in the evening you were basically traveling in, in short sleeves even though outside it was probably a good five degrees cooler it was quite pleasant um, but you know they plastered signs up about taking water bottles with you making sure you've got water on the tube you know don't get dehydrated if you feel unwell yeah take yourself off at the next platform yeah. get dragged yeah. so you don't get dragged <laughs> it's, a, it's a big big deal so with with excellent time this might be a good time to just briefly mention um, uh, a friend and colleague of mine ed hawkins was involved with a paper um that was released i think the thursday before last so literally the day after or during this last heat wave that we had and it was about um the number of people globally who are um exposed to kind of really high thresholds um of heat so so dangerous heat and um, apparently approximately 30% of the world's population is currently exposed to climatic conditions um, that exceed this like deadly threshold so for about 20 days a year. Oh, I haven't got the number in, fo- in front of me because I haven't got the, uh, the paper in front of me. I've only got the abstract. Oh, you we can't introduce that a, you know, the oh, deadly sorry. threshold and then uh, tell us what it is. Well, it depends. <laughs> it, it depends. Deadly thresholds depend on... Oh, hang on a second. I can't... No, Presumably I'll find it, I'll find it later. Are, it's high. in the UK, the, the definition of when a heat wave hits on varies. humidity in, as well. So, so, so definitely it's not just heat, but it's atmospheric conditions. That's um, interesting because humidity makes everything just feel much more muggy, as we use the word in the UK. And makes makes the human response so the um, um, the response the sweating response is less efficient. Of course, because your body's trying to lose to sweat, lose moisture, so that it gets blown off and it cools you down. That's but right, but it can't because saturated. it's saturated. Yeah. So I've got some local threshold temperatures in front of me. Um, so we've got um, the daytime and nighttime temperatures. So for us in the southwest, the 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 uh, temperature threshold is thirty degrees during the day, and above 15 degrees at night is when they start to become aware there might be a problem. But with places like London, where you've got the heat island effect, the urban heat island effect, um, uh, it's 32 degrees during the day and 18 degrees during the night where, where the threshold kicks in. And going as low as the northeast, which has the lowest thresholds, is 28 during the day and 15 during the night. So when I say urban heat island, this is the... Um, a phenomena that whereas buildings heat up during the day and retain a lot of heat and the more buildings you have around you in say London um, the more heat is then sort of uh, released during the the uh, the dark hours 
So, so you can see there, I guess, um, that people adapt to their local uh, climate conditions, right? And the, and the, and the, a dangerous threshold or a, a threshold that you might be worried about is different for, for different people in different places, different times. And so presumably in hot African countries, you know, the threshold that you've just talked about in, in Ed Hawkins' paper is going to be significantly well, perhaps not significantly, but it's going to be higher. I'll check thought, that. I'll check that. Yeah, I, and, uh, and, and the humidity and, and yeah, whatever. Yeah. But um, uh, but also, I, I'm not sure if that's the case with a deadly threshold. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, so I know for, for, for dangerous thresholds, that's definitely the case, but I'm not sure. Um, with, uh, so I'll check that and, and, and maybe we'll put a link to the paper on the... Uh, on the show notes as well, um, but it was it was worth think, it was worth looking at the kind of headline figures just to understand how those climates are changing. So it, this is it's only one study, but um, you know, and, and I'm sure it's not the last word on the subject. But the 30% of people who are exposed now to at least 20 days a year of this deadly threshold um, under a severe mitigation. So if we sort of really cut carbon emissions, you're looking at 48% by 2100. Gosh, so, so that's an increase of eighteen percent. That's right. Wow. Even with mitigation and and without, um, uh, with 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 continually growing emissions, you're looking at seventy four percent of of the world's population. So a really large number of people. That's a so, phenomenal number. It's huge. That's, so and that was by twenty one hundred. Yes. So this okay. is exposure. So obviously, by you know, as as you go through time, um, people get richer. People are able to buy air conditioning units, for example. You change your infrastructure. You change the way you live, and and that will impact then um, uh, the numbers. That, of people, you know, who are actually exposed to that kind of temperature. But you, if you're looking at sort of areas of the world, then then the number of areas of the world which we class as inhabitable without real engineering um, are definitely reducing, uh, even under mitigation scenarios. So that's worth bearing in mind. Obviously, not the last word on the subject, but um, that's the kind of order of magnitude change that's going to happen. So, so do we know what the most recent deadliest uh, weather phenomenon was? Uh, relating to health? Uh, no, I'm thinking this is going to be some kind of natural hazards, flooding, disaster type thing. It was the Great Smog um, in London in December uh, 1952. Would anybody like to hazard a guess how many people the estimate were killed directly due to the the three three or four days of smog? That Only they three had? or four days. Go on, go three on, Jeff. Four days, twelve thousand. Wow, okay, it's died. huge numbers. It's massive. It's yeah. extraordinary. They reckon four thousand people died um, uh, during the actual event, and then uh, a further eight thousand were vulnerable uh, and died um, afterwards. And then there was tens of thousands who were affected, but then recovered. But again, it was the most vulnerable people. So the smog, which is a, a portmanteau word, it's a combination of smoke and fog. And basically, what happens is um, when fog forms, it, uh, the, the small water droplets have to have to uh, form on what we call uh, cloud condensation nuclei, and the smog, the pollutants, the the soot and sulfur di- dioxide, and all these pollutants just give the water more surfaces to form on. Um, and actually, the, the sulfur dioxide and the burning of um, uh, fossil fuels, and uh, there was a lot of tar in the. Uh, in the atmosphere as well, um, made the fog turn a sort of yellowish, greenish, blackish, which is where the pea super came from because okay. it was that sort of colour. Yeah, I heard that. Um, and um, and this this led to uh, eventually to the to the Clean Air Act um, of uh, 1956 initially, but it has been updated since then. And it was when they finally recognised that they had to do something about it. So basically, we had a high pressure area uh, of weather move in on on around the fourth of December 1952. 
um, and an inversion form. So this is where there's a layer of warm air above a layer of cold air, with the cold air going from the surface up to the to the layer of warm air, and it means that the atmosphere um, can't can't mix as well as it normally does. Okay, there was so no wind. Dense, it flush itself out. You've got okay, dense, dense cold, cold air, air at the bottom. At the bottom, and a, and a lid of, of warmer air. Okay, that traps, traps it. Okay. That traps everything. All the pollution was, was building up, and the, there was no wind, nowhere for it to go. Humidish conditions, and it was cold as well. It was very cold, so there were more people burning coal fires. So you've got a perfect storm. Of- yeah, yeah. So a huge amount of different things came together, and but the effect was extraordinary, you know. Um, uh, and this, as I say, led to the Clean Air Act, and this is why we have so much more control uh, on things. And but, things uh, have obviously improved a lot since then. But actually, in those same calm, still cold winter conditions, you, you, we obviously still get these inversion layers mm. forming, that's a meteorological phenomena. Yeah. And for people with asthma or existing kind of respiratory conditions, um, those can still be, you know, really noticeable, I think, on, on your breathing, well, you can um, see, you particularly can around s- Guy Fawkes night, things like that, you know, when there's yes. extra pollution in the air. Or, yeah, well, that's exactly what happened on the M5 uh, that time, was they lit a bonfire. Um, and this generated a lot of smoke in in an atmos- in atmospheric conditions that were just primed to form fog, and of course with the extra smoke it formed smog, and there was a horrendous crash on the M5 uh, next to one of these fireworks parties. But you know the people who lit the bonfire had no idea this would be that this would be the effect, you know, because there'd been no studies into bonfires and. And, and fog at density, you know, but um, and that's a visibility impact rather than yeah, the, the that's, a, impact, that's a visibility. So it's again tangential, but uh, you know, it's, it's one of these uh, indirect effects, though. But you can yeah. see this happening with with uh, going back to the the smog conditions. If you get high pressure in summer, quite often you'll get an easterly. So the the winds will be reached, or the air will be reaching us from the continent. And if we have a high pressure over us for several days in the summer you will see the visibility slowly dropping as more and more pollution comes in and builds up you know and uh, and again this affects people like uh, asthmatics or your COPD and what have you and if it's in the summer as well as the um maybe the pollution that's in the air and the hot weather contributing to people's health you've often also got the pollen in the air as well depending on the time of year so sometimes you've got that kind of triple whammy of the the heat and the the pollution and the pollen and they really intermingle with each other so if um so lots of people suffer from hay fever or asthma, which would um, be exacerbated by breathing in the, the pollen from, from different allergenic um, plants and trees and weeds that we have in the UK. And if your airways are already sort of irritated by um, pollution, then the amount of pollen it takes to trigger a sort of hay fever response is much lower than if there was clean air at that time. Oh, that's really so so they, it lowers, yeah, absolutely, because it's the same sort of respiratory tract that's that gets irritated. So, uh, yeah, there's studies that have shown that the um, the pollution sort of lowers the amount of pollen that we take to to trigger a reaction in any one individual. Your so, tolerance drops as yeah, you add these extra exactly. pollutants on top. Exactly. I was wondering about that. So, I mean, I tend to think of air pollution affecting health through, you know, the the lungs and the respiratory mm. area. I don't. I'm fortunate not to suffer from hay fever. Does that work in the same way? Because often that's more, I don't know, you tend to see people sneezing and, and runny eyes. And does, are the particles bigger so they don't get into the lungs as much? Or is it just different mechanisms? So certainly in terms of the pollen, people can, be, uh, people can suffer from eczema, hay fever or asthma. And these will affect people in slightly different ways. And in, in the UK, uh, we've got one of the highest rates of doctor diagnosed asthma in the UK. So 10% of the people in the UK have asthma. 
And of those people with asthma, 80% are allergic to pollen. So for those people with asthma, this is a big impact on people. And then in terms of hay fever, I've only got the number for England, so we'll have to extrapolate for the UK. But um, uh, NHS Choices website says that greater than 10 million people in England have hay fever. And so that's what you're describing, Claire, when I think it's still, I think the pollen still, you breathe it in and it irritates your airways. But the way that that manifests obviously can be uh, runny eyes, runny nose, um, particularly throat, and it can be very, um, like, really affect people's well-being and their ability to go to work, their ability to do day-to-day things, um, and it has a huge economic impact through number of days lost and, and just makes people feel miserable. I know, and I'm fortunate not to suffer, but I know a lot of friends at the moment who are really struggling with the hay fever at the moment. And, and are there certain times of the year when it's worse? I mean, obviously pollen gets released over yeah. long periods. Yeah, so there's different types. So I mentioned there's trees, grasses and weeds. Those are the three sort of different types of plants we have in the UK that cause pollen that would that would uh, trigger sort of asthma or hay fever. So early in the season, sort of spring, so it can be as early as January, February, whenever you start seeing the trees begin to flower. Um, but sort of definitely by March to mid-May, that's your different tree species and each different tree species will flower at a slightly different time and why, why and when that flowers will depend on the weather, not just at the time. It will also depend on like the length of day, you know, how much light there is for the plant to grow, but it will also depend um, on the, the weather sort of the season before, like the winter before when the pollen was forming in the plants and things. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of factors. responses, yeah, Absolutely. that makes the, the statistics particularly hard. Yeah, <laughs> so early on you've got these tree season um, and then we just move into the grass season, so where we are now, so sort of um, May to July is the grass season in the UK and that uh, grass is the one that most people that have a pollen allergy, most people are allergic to grass, that's the big allergen for people. And then after that, sort of end of June into um, September, that's our weed weed pollen, so nettle and things like so, that. that. So can out. pollen be, like like with pollution, can pollen mm-hmm. be washed out with rain? It yeah. absolutely can, yeah. So See, different... another good reason why rain's better than <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the rain will bring uh, the pollen down to the ground and so on a, on a wet day you'll notice your, your symptoms are much lower. Um, and wind, what, you know, the, the direction and the speed that the wind in will change completely where the pollen goes and also the time of day. So I tend to think of it as like commuter time. So if you were commuting a sort of stereotypical nine to five job, um, that time sort of early in the morning and then late at night is when the pollen levels at a level that you would likely breathe them in are highest. That's um, is so you'll probably to... know that it's about the, the height of the boundary layer and, and the, the heating oh. through the day sort of changes that. So you'll probably know more about that than me, Claire, about so I was wondering works. whether you were going to say some kind of tree plant response to, to temperature or oh, sunlight yeah. or anything, but it's also related to the boundary layer being it's lower absolutely. overnight, and then so everything's closer to the surface. Yes, yes. So and then it lifts the day, up it lifts through the day, and then it comes back down. Mm. So a few tips if you are bothered by hay fever at this time of year. Um, think about what if, if you know it's grass pollen or you've worked out it's this time of year maybe don't cycle to work it, you know at those times of day if you can change what time you go or maybe you know maybe use a different mode of transport for a few weeks because cycling obviously you're breathing in a lot of that pollen other things when you come back in um, after spending any time outside if you're bothered by the hay fever like change your clothes the pollen will be stuck to your clothes it'll be in your hair so have a shower um change your clothes and then go to bed because otherwise if you go to bed and it's in your hair you rub it into your pillow and you breathe it all in all night so there's lots Mm -hmm. that you can do to think about oh another thing like don't dry your washing outside on the line like the week that your 
pollens out because then you're, you're just, just covering all your clothes and bedding and things. I'm just thinking pollen, like so. hay fever causes carbon emissions, right? So you can't cycle, you can't dry your clothes outside. You need to, this is <laughs> you need to shower more often. That, <laughs> this is no good. <laughs> But really yeah. good, really useful advice. That's super. But it's a bit. Advice. It has a big effect for a lot of people. So, so, so this makes be... this makes sense. So I know that the the Met Office has been uh, recently, more recently, issuing a pollen forecast as well, right? Yeah, we do. We issue on our on our app and on our website. And if you if you get the app, you can get a free alert to tell you when pollen levels are high, uh, medium, very high, etc. In your area, and I think that can be really useful for sufferers just to have that heads up in the morning that they maybe need to take their antihistamine or, or whatever they do to manage their condition just to make it a bit less of a miserable day for them so and presumably that's possible because as you were saying Rachel we now understand how these weather dynamics affect things so we know the weather from the previous season we know whether it's raining or not we know what the, weather, the temperatures have been like we absolutely know the seasons, and yeah we're really in. well placed to be able to provide people with that information because we have all that weather information and as you said Jeff if it's going to be raining in your location we'll know that even if the plants are producing the pollen it's not being uh, lifted up into the air in the same way it's being rained down so we've also got a um, network of pollen monitors around the UK so the Met Office runs the pollen observation network around the UK so we've got a small number of sites around the UK where we measure pollen collect it from the air and count, count the different pollen grains so when you say so, count the grains is that's literally so somebody under a microscope at the painstakingly moment that's what it is plants. really highly trained people who can tell the difference through an optical microscope between a grass pollen and a birch pollen and things Presumably and they they're non-hay fever sufferers. I don't know, maybe they would want to. They'd <laughs> have all, the more, all, the more, all the more reason that they might want to make sure that they knew whether it was high or low. So how many sites around the country are there? I'd need to double check, but about of the order of about 13 at the moment. Right. So it's not a huge uh, network, but... Um, it gives us, you know, they're well spread through the UK, so that gives us a good indication of where things are, are flowering. And you can see the... Um, uh, flowering season sort of go north up the country as as the time goes on. So even if you don't have a site in a certain location, you can infer when you know combined you, with the weather yeah, conditions. Spring when moves things. northwards at a certain you know certain oh, mile it's per so hour. So many days kind of per pace, yeah. Yeah, so about walking pace, I believe. Yeah, so yeah. I've heard that before. Yeah. So Rachel, it sounds yeah. like you've been involved with um, sort of developing some of the science on this, and it, uh, and I've been reading about your um, or the involvement you've had with with mapping um, the sort of uh, key plants for allergies and asthma in in the UK. Could you tell us a bit about? Yeah. That? So one of the things we've done um, in a large uh, collaboration project that we've done with um, the, under the Health Protection Research Unit. Um, is that we've been mapping some of these key allergenic species in the UK and some of the species that are monitored by this pollen network that I've just talked about that are observing. So we looked at grass, uh, we looked at certain allergenic tree species, so for example birch, oak, alder trees, which are some of the allergenic ones, and then we also looked at mapping sort of nettle and some of the other weeds as well. And the reason for doing this is there wasn't a great deal known about the distribution of these plants um, across the UK. Um, so I've talked about how the weather moves the pollen once it leaves the, the plant. Uh, the weather, the wind, the rain, things like that will move move the pollen away. But a lot of pollen stays reasonably locally. It can travel all the way around the globe. So there are, you know, some of the pollen will travel a really long distance. But um, there's been studies that show that at about 20 kilometres or 40 kilometre distance, the, the pollen levels are highly correlated. So there's really a big local influence. So for us to map um, where these plants are um, 
will help in a number of different studies. Uh, we were doing it in this um, uh, study for two purposes. One is that down the line, it could definitely lead into um, a more detailed pollen forecast. So we could, at the moment, we issue a pollen alert for all pollen, but I'm talking about these different species, and most people will probably be allergic to one or, or a few of these, but not all of the pollen species. So, so if you know exactly where that species if is, we knew you can where then it start was and we could start into a model framework and absolutely tracking individual in tree species, giving people yeah. a more detailed sort of individualized, localized forecast. I think would be helpful for people. So that's something that we could do down the line with these maps as a starting point. And the other thing that we were doing um, these maps for was so that we could look at the health impacts of these different species, so that we could see if we could understand. So they're now being linked by other some of the researchers with um, health data, so like hospital admission data, uh, GP uh, um, consultation data, um, and there's a possibility to link it to um, pharmaceutical sales or other other health data where we could start to try and tease out um, which of these species or combinations of species, um, and you talked about confounding factors earlier, Doug, um, also looking at the role of uh, the air air quality on those days as well to really try and tease out which of these species might be causing the biggest health impact that's great so so there's been a huge collection of that data since i think the the mid 90s is is really when it started to kick off with the health data Um, so that's going to be so applying um we we often you hear about big data but it sounds like a genuine really useful application of of big data and um algorithms for getting kind of information from that so statistical algorithms for for getting information from that Um, yeah absolutely um and 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 what else is going on in terms of um in terms of pushing that forward rachel you've been talking about um some of some of the dna studies yeah so something that um i think is really interesting and will be have a big impact on people i've mentioned already that grass pollen is the one that most people in the uk are allergic and I didn't know this until I started looking at the study, but there's over 150 different species of grass in the UK. That's a huge it's number a of, lot of grass, species of grass, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so we touched on this earlier, Claire. So at the moment, if someone is going to count the pollen and identify whether this is a grass pollen or a birch pollen or an oak pollen... They look through the microscope optically and they, they see the grass pollen. Um, but all of the these 150 grass pollen species are almost impossible to distinguish by eye so from the pollen grain. They all okay. look very similar. Maybe some highly trained people could tell a few of them apart, but they're very, very similar. And so at the moment, it's very hard for us to understand which of these 150 species. It's thought that probably about 10 to 15 of them will be allergenic and the others might be much less allergenic for people. Is that true? So, so, is there a feeling for why some are more allergenic than others? Just the shape of the pollen grain? Is the grain I don't know really. I'm not sure if it would be so much about the shape, but maybe the potency of the the compound within it. I'm, okay. not, I, I'm not sure, but basically, not much is known about exactly which ones would be most allergenic. And so, there's a new technique uh, that using sort of molecular genetics where you can extract the DNA. So we've set up a new alongside these samplers that I talked about. They're collecting the pollen. At the moment, we've set alongside in parallel. Um, a new set of samplers that are extracting at the same time another tube of pollen um, and it's going to be put in a little test tube and it can be um, extracted sort of extract the DNA from it and there's a big barcode library um, uh, which the National Botanic Gardens of Wales have done already where they've mapped this sort of barcode of the DNA of all the plants in the all the native plants in in Wales and extended that to the UK and so we can use that to kind of look up 
um, the DNA of each species to find out what, what species are there. So first of all, we can see what species are in the air. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm going to produce um, grass maps. So the species maps that I've talked about, we're going to map as well these these allergenic species. And then you can combine that with the health data to see if we can find out which of these species are most allergenic. And I just think um, if we start to think about how you would then mitigate against this if you did work out which of the species were most allergenic in terms of like what time of year you cut the grass or councils or local authorities if they were going to do their grass cutting and they knew they had a whole you know verge side of this allergenic grass if they're going to cut it twice a year make sure that they cut it before it flowers and not after it's produced the pollen and things like that potential just simple changes in simple changes absolutely yeah i think so or in planting schemes if you know if there's Mm -hmm. new developments or you're going to plant new things just having a bit more information about what might be the right types of things to plant i think could make a big help to people it's an incredible example of how multidisciplinary science is now becoming and needing to become really yeah. you know you're talking dna sequencing through to you know the weather forecast and and health um results statistics in between and, and yeah. how so many different groups sound like they're having to come together yeah. to produce what ultimately will hopefully improve people's health and well-being absolutely for something that you know hay fever probably isn't seen as one of these big challenges but actually if so many people suffer from it it's, a, it's having a real it impact so on people's people, mental health and well being. Really yeah absolutely through the summer months absolutely a great project yeah yeah oh, well we hope that comes off to <laughs> producing some good results what's the time frame for delivering um so we've got another two years left on the project we've been collecting these data for the last uh, year um and starting to do the dna sampling and things we've got two more years left on the project oh and it's called polygen we've got a hashtag am i allowed to oh yeah we're all over twitter yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. um so hashtag polygen which is pollen allergen genetics nice. all merged into a nice word so um there's a really good website that you can have a look at uh, the team and and who's working on it and what we're trying to do there so great we'll make sure that goes up on the show notes oh thanks very yes. much and we will tweet that out so anyone that wants to know our twitter handle we're at at mw underscore podcast uh, which hopefully is fairly obvious mostly by the podcast yes. but we'll we'll tweet out a link oh that would to be brilliant your website yeah for sure. that would be great thanks and make sure we spell the hashtag properly i'll, I'll write it down for you <laughs> We, so we kind of touched on kind of well-being and uh, Jeff, you mentioned at the start, uh, SAD, seasonal affective disorder. And, and I guess, you know, we've talked very much about hot, cold, air pollution, pollen, but there are other aspects of, of how weather just sort of affects us generally, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, um, the first one I can think of really is don't get struck by lightning. Uh, that's fairly uh, detrimental to your health. <laughs> but but uh, psychologically, um, uh, things like flooding... Um, can impact on your mental health as well. Um, uh, I think, Rachel, you mentioned something about this, didn't you? Yeah, people think of flooding as the sort of immediate effects or maybe the the diseases or things in the floodwater, but actually the effect of flooding in the UK certainly has been that people have been displaced from their homes often for, you know, up to a year they're displaced out of their homes and they've lost their possessions and things. So this is a huge impact. So, yeah, there's a big um, problem with mental health, um, depression, exacerbating existing depression in people, and uh, cases of PTSD resport- reported as well. In response to flooding? In response to flooding, yeah. yeah. So I think that will be uh, something 
to to watch out if that's the sort of thing that might happen more frequently under climate change and that's another especially thing it's one of those things flooding isn't it if it's happened to you once there's always the potential it's going to happen again and you're going to be sort of waiting for the next incident yeah that's true and, and that's not just a uk phenomenon i mean obviously there's lots of places in the world that get flooding um i was thinking about the states you know they have tornadoes if you live in tornado alley I, i'm assuming that must have an impact on the way you conduct your life during the tornado season and, and obviously the risk that it causes actual physical harm as well and yeah. i suppose there's some horrible incidents flooding and storms recently where people have have died as a result of being caught up in flood water or washed off cliffs so yeah i mean the, i mean uh, you know joking aside i mean thunderstorms i've worked with people in the past who, who have to go and hide virtually in a cupboard whenever there's a thunderstorm near because they have a phobia of th- thunderstorms you know, and it really does impact on their lives. If there's a potential of one forming or mm. coming anywhere close, then that's it. They can't. They can't work because they have to go and hide away somewhere. It's interesting you mentioned thunderstorms there. So there's a new phenomenon that people have found from the from the health data that you mentioned, Doug, is that um, during and just after a thunderstorm, there's a huge spike in admissions to hospital for respiratory really? related. Yeah, okay. so they call it thunderstorm asthma, but it's not really. Uh, it's, there's a lot of ongoing research to really understand wh- what is going on and why that's happening. And um, but it's thought some combination of the atmospheric conditions that create the thunderstorm. So basically, yeah, before a thunderstorm, you've normally got a buildup of heat and, and quite stagnant air. Yeah. And then and then there'll be some sort of trigger um, to start the um, convection, which okay. will trigger a thunderstorm. Yeah. That convection often involves a lot of. Uh, um, wind at surface level as the air rushes into to replace the 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 convection uh, that's going aloft uh, and also just um, on the leading edge of thunderstorms if you get um, a, a heavy rain that drags down the air with it and you'll get like a, a squall or a, um, a gust front they call it uh, just ahead of the storm so yeah. again that picks up everything and mixes it into the atmosphere so, so. so the other thing that they think that happens with thunderstorm asthma might be that the pollen that's in the air because it often happens with a, with a sort of quite high pollen levels as well if this happens over the summer is that they think that perhaps uh, what might be happening is that the pollen grain itself is either absorbing the water or something is happening in the thunderstorm to that pollen grain that's sort of breaking apart the pollen grain, in which case the really allergenic um, particles, I'm not sure what's inside the pollen grain, but the really allergenic centre of that is let out, and so that then when people do breathe it in, um, it's not sort of encased in the pollen grain. But I think that's something that like a lot of work's going on at the moment because it's not fully understood what this is. But oh, we'll there's been cases yeah, in the UK like where on. that's happened. And last year in Australia, there was a huge case um, of thunderstorm asthma. So it's ongoing research because obviously it's it's worrying for people. Yeah. The other example I found sort of talking about these sort of more psychological issues is... Um, you know, we've not really talked much about wind. Um, and uh, this is because I experienced it on my holidays a few weeks ago. But the, the Mistral wind, for example, that, that kind of flows off the Alps and down through France and the Rhone Valley seems to have kind of both positive and men- and negative health issues. So, I, you know, some of this is possibly slightly kind of conjecture. But because it's so fast and I think it's very dry and it's cold, there are, you know, sort of sayings about driving people slightly mad and uh, children and animals becoming very restless because this wind just doesn't stop um i so so is it just me i remember being at school when it was windy and all the kids would run around going crazy is that is that is that was that just me when it was stormy outside primary school kids just no go that's get true more. but is that just because it's a bit exciting and the wind maybe maybe and, well, I, but maybe that's all it is yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll get back to that maybe we'll, get, we'll have a look and see if there's any studies on, on, on primary schools uh, kids um, the only, the getting only, worked up by wind the only wind anecdote I've got really is I spent five months down in the Falkland Islands which is it is notoriously windy but when you actually get there you find out that it's not particularly strong wind it's just constant you know so uh, so you've got this constant wind going and i was um eating in the in the army mess you know and the, the the hugely calorific meals but i lost so much weight and we think it's just because of this constant chilling effect on you and your body producing more heat and using up the energy that you've you've eaten did you not think about going inside well, <laughs> I'm an obs- I was an observer. Yeah. I had to be outside. Had to be outside. <laughs> Part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe the stress of the constant wind makes, yeah. makes you... Uh, well, the, and, of way. course, you're constantly leaning into the wind and walking yeah. into the wind, so the wind never stopped blowing on a given day. Everyone fell over. <laughs> they didn't. Well, just to throw it in there, just... As part of my research, I did just find a study, and this is from the British Medical Journal, so a serious journal published in 2012, and the title of the paper is Wind Direction and Mental Health, a Time Series Analysis of Weather Influences in a Patient with Anxiety Disorder. And they found an almost perfect correlation between the levels of anxiety in, in a man and the direction of the wind. Now, that, no, that is interesting. Okay, so that, that, A, that's super interesting. So, so I'd say this n equals one here the the subject there's one subject right yes there is only one subject okay so there's a whole bunch of interesting things that might be going on with this there's one subject there's all sorts of biases that can creep in and it would be really interesting to see if there's any more papers published which show anything similar um because you can imagine just um lots of these studies might have been done and discovered no effect but the one that does discover an effect is the one that gets published. Okay, so say it's just a random... Yeah, it might be a confirmation bias thing, but that, that's... that's uh, We'll have a look at that later, Claire. That I, sounds I'm cool. afraid, yeah, I didn't have enough time to do a, a particularly thorough literature search. It just kind of popped up, and I was quite surprised, actually, that it, the was, it existed has full stop. Impact. Or it might just be somebody who's... But, who's but this has just triggered something. I, I remembered about uh, the East End of London, and, and, and the, if... Because winds are generally westerly uh, in in the UK, so they're coming from the west. That if you lived in the east of a city, it was generally poorer because that's where all the pollution. Oh yeah, you see that throughout throughout the UK. Yeah, so you you look at the UK, and and it's the same in other countries as well, where maybe the wind direction comes, uh, you know, is 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 different. It's where you're you're downwind of all the pollution from all the factories. Is where all the poor areas are. Interesting. So, well, we've covered a huge range of topics, hot, cold, pollen, air quality, wind. Um, Jeff mentioned UV right at the very start as well. So um, ultraviolet effects, sunburn, that sort of thing. Um, I guess the good news, though, is actually a lot of these things we're able to forecast. So, you know, Rachel, you've mentioned that we do a pollen forecast. We obviously do temperatures as part of the normal forecasting process here at the Met Office. But um, during the summer uh, months, we also have a heat health watch, uh, which will give information as to whether there are heat waves around. Um, and during the winter, we have a cold weather alert system together with Age UK and the NHS, um, which will alert people, particularly those suffering with CPD. So I think uh, this relates directly to the work you talked about at the start. Doc. Yeah, I know so, people, when I was working on it, people were starting to get um, spend much more time thinking about how to, how to mitigate these effects and thinking about temperature thresholds and whatever. So I know there's been a lot of work and a lot of money spent on it. So um, and hopefully that's going to save people's lives. Exactly, that's the aim. So if you are interested in finding out more, I think there's lots of information available on websites. So in the UK, from the NHS, Public Health England, Age UK, I'm sure in other countries around the world there are similar initiatives. We've already heard about France. 
So do do check out more, particularly if you suffer from any of these conditions. Fascinating topic today. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. Thank you, Rachel, for coming along and telling us all about your pollen work. That's great. Um, we will try and get some links up to that, as I said, on the Twitter uh, handle uh, so we're at nw underscore podcast yeah i'm at, at doug mcneil i'm at jeff n brown and i'm at claire s whittam i like our use of the uh, middle initials here <laughs> um rachel will tweet out the website um and we'll also try and put some useful uh, pictures and some facts about what you've shown us maybe some of your pollen maps actually that would be great yeah, that'd be super. um on the show notes and they can be found on the Met Office website, so that's metoffice.gov.uk forward slash mostly hyphen weather forward slash episode 18. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Um, please do leave us a review on iTunes or whatever your favourite app um, or listening device happens to be. Please feel free to tweet us any questions or get in contact by email, which is mostly weather at metoffice.gov.uk. It's been great. We've had some really great emails from people. So thanks very much for, to people emailing in. We have, and we do try to tweet some relevant bits and bobs out. So yeah, do, do get in touch with us. We do love to hear uh, how you think about things. And we will join you all for the next podcast in another month's time. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.